0: I'm an alcoholic. My name's Bob. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Boy, y'all looking good this morning. This this is great. Uh, It's just been a wonderful conference. You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that normally we're men and women who wouldn't associate with each other until we get to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I've got to meet a lot of you since I've been down here. And and i got to tell you, I'd get drunk with any of you. I just want you to know that. (laughs) It's just been great, I I tell you. And it's just uh, to see so many old friends I hadn't seen in a while. And and Joe, my buddy from Savannah, came up, and just to meet some new friends. And another Joe, and then I got to meet Dan, and and it's just so many. And and I got to thank Pat, and I got to thank Betty, and I got to thank the committee, and I got to thank Lynn. I mean, yes, thank you, everybody. Coffee House Players. I mean, you guys just did a super job, and I mean, this just been great. Uh, You know, I, I. when I come to these conferences, or I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I got to tell you, I always get more than I give. And and see, and, and when I when I'm when I'm here with my kind of people, it just helps me go out there next week and swim in that sea of life because, uh, you know, they don't understand me out there. You know, they don't understand me out there. And five o'clock this afternoon, I got to get on a plane and go go do business. And I mean, you know, and I guess I hope I'm not bragging, but see, I got a high class problem today. I got a job. You know? <laughs> I got a job. You know? and, and y'all help me. Uh, now, Robert, I don't know. He told me right before I got up here, he said, don't laugh this deal up among friends, and I really didn't need to hear that. But uh, where is it, uh, But anyway, this uh, this, is, this has been good. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the other speakers who went before me. And, and Claire, what a powerful message. Thank you, honey. Thank you. I've you listened to Claire's tape I don't know how many times, and, and when I got here, Uh, I got on the elevator, and I was coming down the lobby, and this little old sweet lady got on the elevator, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and she said, I'm Claire. And I said, my God, there's Claire from California, So It was good. (laughs) It's been wonderful. And Ken last night, I mean, Ken always makes me laugh, and and that's what it's all about, laughing and loving. And and then Jim and, and Ray. Oh God! We just live, and I've adopted that family. You know, you got you, I got all kind of families today. But, but the main family I got is the family of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that message is just powerful. And then the lady that spoke Thursday night, I need to make sure that you know. And she did get honest up here the other night when she talked about the hunk in her life. In case you, <coughs> in, in case you, in case you don't know, that's me. <laughs> you know? And for you dirty old men out there, that's my wife, not my daughter. In case you got that mixed up. But uh, I love her to death, and uh, and we just have fun. We just have fun. I, I taught him a sponsor the other day when I got down. I had to call him and get my instructions, and, you know, I have to do that, you know. And he says, okay, hot shots, be sure and tell him you home group. Home group, keep it simple. In Greenville, South Carolina, we meet on Mondays and Fridays, the best group I know going. And he says, tell him you survived today, September 17, 1983, by God's grace, rooms like this and 12 steps, and I'm so ever grateful. And he says, you know, he says, you're not at that entertain. He says, you're not that'll be a big shot. You just share your experience, strength, and hope. And he says, Oh, by the way, if it goes pretty good, might want to mention my name. (laughs) So Probably wouldn't know who I was talking about. His, his name's Sterling W. Sterling Fletcher's boss, the third. he's got about as much anonymity as sales and roebucks, so that's okay. But well, he's a great man, and I love him, and I love him to death. But uh, you know, it's good to be here, and it, it really is. Uh, you, you know, when you when you when you share your experience, strength, and confidence at a, at a I mean, share experience, strength, and hope at a conference like this. You know, the, the ironic thing about it is, is anybody in this room can come up here and do what I'm doing. Because how many times have I heard people, and how many times have I said to people who shared their experience, Drink, to hope you've told my story. And everybody here this weekend told Parks of Bob's story. And I remember when I staggered through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, or when I ended up here, let me say that, because I don't think I would have come here. I just ended up here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if you'd have waited for me to come here, I, I wouldn't have done it. I, I got up one morning and I took a drink and it and didn't work anymore. And so that's how I got to the problem of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember when I got through these doors, an old man with 30 years of sobriety, he said, Bob, he says, I need to talk to you. He says, drinking's not your problem. And I said, what well, do you mean, squire? He said, well, he said, you probably one of the best drinkers around. He says, he says how much did you drink before you got here? And I said, and I bragged a little bit. You know how we in And I said, oh, I drank about a half a gallon a day, squire. And he said, see there? He said, you one of the best drinkers gone. He says, I want to ask you a question. I said, what's that, squire? He said, what happened to you when you stopped drinking? And, and, you know, you think about it. And What happened to me when I quit drinking is that's when I went crazy. See, people told me all my life, Bob, you drink too much. You need to quit. You need to slow down. Well, I'd go out there and throw those sobers. And I'd be sober for about four or five days, and I'm crazy. And then I'd ease into that bar, and I'd pick up a drink, and I'd pick up that bottle, and that ease and comfort came in that first drink. It made Bob Okay. But when O'Friar was talking about me, he said, Bob, he said, living's your problem. Living without drinking's your problem. He says, if you come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, he says, we're going to teach you. Furthermore, we're going to show you how to live without drinking. Living was the problem. All my life, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, we got to let go and quit fighting anybody, any place, and anything. And i got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I fought for 44 years. I fought for 44 years, and when I ceased fighting, God, what a relief. What a lot of relief! Yeah. So I can remember back when I was growing up in Manning High School. See, early on, I just knew I was different. I knew I was different from my five or six years old when I looked around and I saw what everybody else had and what I had. See, my mom and I lived in a little old small white frame house in Manning, South Carolina. I looked across the street in the woods lived in a big old big old nice house. And all right, getting it up. That's good. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. <laughs> but I looked over there at the woods and they had six brothers and I didn't have any brothers and I also they had in that family, they had a big old nice house and they had a mom and they had a dad and they had an automobile and I didn't have any of those things. And see, I was comparing my insides with their outsides and see, when I had to walk to school every morning, they'd stop and they'd say, Bob, well, you want to ride? And I'd be so embarrassed and I'd say, no, I don't want to ride. And they'd say it again, but see, I'm a people pleaser people please and i climb in the back seat of that car and every time I climbed in the back seat of that car I knew I was second class I just felt like I was a second class citizen see I was one of these kids that I had a problem with understanding the English language you tell me to stand up and I'd always want to sit down you tell me to turn right I'd go straight you know you tell me to go somewhere and I didn't want to go and then I'd want to go somewhere when I got there I didn't know why I was there and I was always in a hurry to get somewhere else that's all the way I drank let's drink this quart so I have a good time so we can go get another quart and have another good time you know, I never was, I never could sit down with Bob. I always sat down on Bob. You know, I was very emotionally unstable. You know, I just cried a lot. I don't know why. I was just a crier. Kissed my first girl when I was 13 just started crying. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: After I took my first drink, I tried to kiss a lot of girls and they started crying. <laughs> I never planned to take a drink. I just took a drink. Hal Ray and Calvin came by the house, and I was 16 years old, and said, Bob, let's ride down to the lake, and let's have a beer. You might just like it. I remember the first thing I ever drank in my life, and this is important in my story, is a bottle of champagne. Set in the back seat, Sit in the back seat again, old Calvin's car, and Hal Ray in the front, and they passed me back a bottle of champagne. Took a church key, popped the top on it, and drank it. I said, I believe I'll have another one. They gave me another one, and I drank it. Now, I've heard a lot of people stand behind this podium and say, what did alcohol do to you when you took a drink? Very simple for me. It took me out of the world of reality, put me into that false world of utopia, and that's where I tried to live for the next 28 years. And basically my story consists of three drinks. That first drink I took when I was age 16, that last drink to this date that I took at age 44, and that big one in between. That big one in between, see. I'm not going to sit up here and give you a 45-minute drunk If you don't know how to drink liquor, let's get together after the meeting. We'll talk about it. But I do need to qualify myself as an alcoholic. I went on after I graduated from high school. I went to college for seven years, and I need to tell you that so you won't think it's some dummy up here talking about. Best three years of my college career was when I was a freshman. <clears throat> I do to go to tell you, I didn't go to get an education, I went to have a good time and find a wife, and that's not hard for people like us to do, right? Married a girl in Eastern North Carolina, and guess where she came from? She came from an alcoholic family. You know, sick people attract sick people. And after that, out of that marriage, we were married for 20 years and two weeks, and we had two beautiful daughters. I never, I never abused that family physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually I did. You know, I was one of these drunks that just never wanted to come home, you know. Because I was too busy wrapped up in me trying to go out there and be like them. See, I was one of this old boy, guy down in States Square, Georgia. He said, I was one of these kind of drunks that used to lay out, drag in, and pile up. That was me. That was me, you know. That's a country and western song going around now that says, Hanging out, hanging in, and then hanging on. That was me. You know, I'd come in, I'd come in off a week drunk, and I'd just lay around there, and you know how we are. And I was married to that lady for 20 years and two weeks and never. And I think the biggest biggest damage of the tornado that I became in that family is as I abused them so much mentally and so much emotionally and so many times spiritually because I never was there. I just never was always used and abused anything that was there to me. It didn't take me long to become a liar and a cheat and a thief, you know. And if I could get honest in my story, probably somewhere in my 28 years of drinking, I probably at some times thought maybe I drank too much. And you know what, I'd have these hangovers and I'd go through all these spells and I'd go see these psychiatrists and I'd go see these psychologists and I'd go see these doctors. I went to see a psychologist one time. He charged me $100. You know what he told me? He said, you got low self-esteem. I said, you got to be kidding. I could have told you that on the phone and saved myself $100. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, go buy yourself a new suit of clothes, new shoes, new shirt, new tie. And he says, hey, come back and see me next week. I went and got good and drunk and did all what he wanted to do, and I bought that new suit, new shirt, new suit, got drunk made the broke man a $400 bad check. (laughs) I put on that new shirt and new suit and new clothes and I looked in the mirror and guess what? I didn't feel okay. I didn't feel okay. And I used to go see a doctor, you know, and I said, Doctor, I'm having spots, you know, I'm seeing spots, I'm lightheaded, you know, when you come off those drunks you have those feelings, you know. and he says, well, how much do you drink? And you know, I don't know why they ask people like me how much I drink. I mean, that's crazy. And I lied and told him, you know, beer here and there. And he says, well, I tell you what, he said, I don't think you feel very well about yourself. He says, I'm going to give you some Healerville. He says, take this for seven to ten days and it'll work and it'll make you feel good. And my thoughts were seven to ten days. I got something in the front seat of the car at work less than seven minutes. So I don't need that, man. People like me don't need to go see doctors. I got, we got a psychiatrist in Greenville, South Carolina. God love him. He's a psychiatrist. He's been sober now about seven years. He said, Bob, I stayed drunk on those theories that I used to tell those people back 20 years. He said, the only theory I need is a 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, it's a program designed for living. And and you know, I don't know why people like me to go to see people like that. I could have gone to a veterinarian. Liv and I just took our cat to the veterinarian. he charged she charged me $161 to pick that cat up. And you know that cat never told the one thing that was wrong with
1: him. <laughs>
0: you think about it, I could have gone and see a veterinarian. they could've diagnosed me and they said, Hey, that's an alcoholic, send him day eight, let him work twelve steps and he'll be okay. I became a habitual liar. and told me, he said, Hey man, you probably lied so much you probably have to get your neighbor to call your dog. <laughs> He's right. You know, that talks about in the book, we can't differentiate the truth from the false. That was me from growing up. I I didn't care whether, I mean, the lying to me was just a way of life. You know, and and the reason I'd want to lie is because I'd always want to make me feel good. Make me feel good about Bob, see? Because if I could throw you off, you wouldn't really want to look at me because if you looked at me real close, you wouldn't like what you saw. So I concocted up all these old lies I'd tell people. And see, I was, a, I was a morning drinker. I was a, I was a vodka. Let me clarify my, my drinker choice. Vodka and Gatorade. Now, let me tell you, I hope you threw a drinking, but if you ain't.
1: <laughs> that
0: glucose to that vodka, I hit your bloodstream just like that, and I'm in you off. I used to find them old sleazy bars about 10, 30, 11 in the morning. I'd slide in there, and it'd be dark. You know how they are, them old lights i just ease up at a bar. Old bartender looked over. How about a pardoning careful one? Yeah, I'll try one. Well, that's a lie right there. I've never been in any bar in my life and had one drink. i knocked down two or three drinks. i look over at that waitress. It was about a two when I walked in. She's already moved up about an eight or nine. <laughs> that bartender was my best friend, and about that time, good old boy would ease in there, and he'd slide up at a bar, and he'd say, How about it, pardon And I'd say, How about it? we start having a little fellowship.
1: <laughs>
0: Knocking those drinks down. He said, what do you do? I said, well, since I've retired, I said, <clears throat> I'm a traveling salesman. He said, retired from what?
1: I said, I used to be a
0: professional football player, you. <laughs> I think. I mean, they love that stuff. You know, if you want to impress them, tell them, you know. He said, who'd you play football for? I said, <clears throat> New York Giants. I had this lie down. I said, I was almost
1: believing
0: it. <laughs> he said, when did you play? I said, the early 60s. And I'd go on with this lie, and then you can have them three and four, three and four deep around a bar. And I mean, they'll be buying you drinks, Oh, Bob over there, play the face, And you always got to tell that lie when nobody doesn't know you, you know. I was telling that lie in Georgia one night. My mama told me, she said, hey, boy, one of these days, they're going to find out about you, and it's going to be heck to play. I tell the old boy left me that lie, and the old boy on the other side of him kept looking over that. I kind of looked over there and he said, hey, he said, when did you say you played for the New York Times? I knew. I said, uh-oh. I thought right quick. And I said, the early 60s. He said, you know, he said, I lived in New York 1959 to 1970 and I had season tickets to all those home games up there. And he said, I never missed a game. He said, what position did you play? And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> I thought right quick and he won't remember this. I said, I'm a defensive back. He looked over there and he said, you know, I believe I was there that Sunday you intercepted the pass and ran it back for a (laughs) touchdown. I looked over at him and he knew and I knew. He knew I was lying and I knew he knew I was lying. He drank free the rest of the night. I can tell you that. as God is my witness, we had a guy that come in, Alcoholics alcoholic in Greenville, South Carolina, his name Frank W., and he was sitting in a meeting one night, he pushed the guy next to him, and he said, You see that old boy over there? And he said, Yeah, that's Bob And He said, Yeah, he used to play professional football. <laughs> <laughs> As
1: God
0: is my witness... As God is my witness, it's hard to take a tenth step from your home group. I'll tell it out, but I had, to, I had to do that. But what I'm getting at, ladies and gentlemen, is I would do anything not, not to deal with Bob. See, old Bob P from Battle Albany, Georgia, sent me a card one time, and it says he's looking at the problem. And for so many years, I couldn't look at the problem. See, finances was my problem. I don't go back to you, but money was always my problem. I never had enough money. see. See, I have developed an attitude early on in life. It's when and then. When I get this, then I'll be okay. When I get that nice house, then I'll be okay. When I get that nice job and that nice car, then I'll be okay. Then once I got all those stuff, I said, I need something else, then I'll be okay. It was always when and then, when and then. But it seemed like to me, finances have always my problem, see. Commercial credit never called me up and said, Bob, you got a drink? Pro- drinking with problem with alcohol. We're going to take you to meet in the AA tonight." at night. They called me up at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon and said, Get down here with four favorites. We come and get the TV. <laughs> but see, I got this person in my life, and if you're an alcoholic like me, you probably had one too, and that's an enabler. Let me tell you a little bit about my enabler because it's my mom. My mom's a nurse at the Memorial Hospital down in Manning, South Carolina. My mom's got a big-time job. She's a nurse, and she helped people all her life. Mom made $10,000 $11,000 a year. I took up the phone, and I called Mom and said, Mom, go be down through Manny next week. Love to see you. Come on down, honey. Love to have you. I'd ride down, and we'd sit in that little old white frame house that she was so proud of and I was ashamed of, and I put the touch on her. Mom, how about 500 Oh, son, I don't know. I don't make a lot of money. Mom, this time it'll be different. I'm going to pay you back. She'd write that check out, $500, the McKinney. I'd take it up to the bank of Clarence and old Bootsy R. She worked up there. She and I graduated from high school together and she's not one of us, but she worked at that bank and I'd slide that check over there and I said, Bootsy, can you cash this for me? And she said, yeah. She said, how you want it, Bob? And I said, give me big bills, please, because I'm a big shot. She'd start counting that money out. She'd look me straight in the eye and she'd say, how's your mom doing, Bob? I said, mom's doing fine. She'd say, how's Bob doing? And I hated her for that. Because, you see, I knew that she knew. You're rotten, Bob. You come coming out here and take taking your, your mom's poor hard-earned money and you it away on liquor and women and gambling and God knows what else. And she was right. I'd walk outside and I'd put that money in my pocket and that guilt would just engulf me. On outside of town's little old liquor store and I'd stop and I'd get that vodka and that Gatorade and I'd start drinking and thinking. The most dangerous thing an alcoholic can do. Riding back up to Charlotte, North Carolina, where we lived, and you know what I thought? Now nice it's time for you to change. Now nice it's time for you to be about a son to that mom. Now nice it's time for you to be about a husband to that wife. Now nice it's time for you to be about a father to those kids. I'm gonna change. But I ain't gonna do it today. Because you see, I got a screaming madness on the inside of me that the only thing that squelches is this thing called alcohol. And two or three days later, I come to in a motel with God knows who and God knows where, and I drag up to that mirror. And I'd say, man, where are you and what's happened? Because you see, I'd been in that blackout. And I'd find that ball and I'd knock down two or three more drinks. And I'd get on that telephone and I'd call my wife and I'd sing one more verse of the AA National Anthem. If you take me back this time, it's going to be different. Give me one more chance. I'm going to change. Two or three months later, I'd pick up the phone and call Mom. Mom, how about 700 $700? About a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen, seventeen. Mom, how about seven thousand dollars? This time it's going to be different. I'm going to change. Let me tell you how this alcoholic changed. July 1981. I got a phone call from my mom. She'd already retired to that hospital. She said, "Son, would you come down here?" She said, "Doctor King wants to put me in the hospital." She says, "I'm having some stomach problems." She said, "I don't think it's anything serious. Would you just come down and check on things and just sort of take care of things for me?" Let me tell you my first thought. Maybe you can identify with this. I got mad. You know, I got mad because she wanted me to do something for her. What does the book of Alcoholics Anonymous say? The the root of my problem is selfishness and self-centeredness. I said, sure, I'll come down. I didn't want to, but I went down and I went by that house and I found found on a table where that telephone was, I found my mother's funeral plans and I found a will on one side. Mom taking care of business. Went out to that hospital. To make a long story short, she stayed in there 28 days. And she died. Dr. King said she's got stomach cancer. It's nothing I can do for her. Just ease the pain with this medication. She's too old. Let me tell you how it changed, ladies and gentlemen. The day before my mom died, I sat in that hospital room. And she came out of that deep sleep and that medication that she was on. And she looked over at me and she said, Son, will you come over here? And I said, Sure. Walked over to my mom's bed and she took my hand and she put it in between her two and she looked up at me and she said, Son, she said, I know the end's near. And she said, That's okay because, see, my mom had found her God in the Man of Methodist Church. She said, I know the end's near. And she says, That's okay. I'm not afraid to leave this life and go to that next one. She said, But I want to ask you one favor. She said, Will you stay here with me and be with me? And I said, Mom, your son will be right here. Don't you worry. My mom slipped off in that deep sleep. I sat down on that chair. Started thinking. Mom's not going to die tonight. I can run it out. I can go out there and do it one more time. I can hear that phone ringing in that plea bag Motel at 6.30 the next morning. There was a nurse on the other end of it. And she said, Bobby, you better get here and get here fast. Your brother's going. When I got back to that hospital, my mom had left this life. And she'd gone to that next one. And she'd gone alone. I had become so mean and so angry, and I hated me so much. And in all due respects to the al that's sitting in this room this morning, you don't have to get even with this drunk. I have gotten even with myself a thousand times before I made my amends to my mom, and I'll share that with you a little later. I buried my mom the next day, and I could not shed one tear. Not one tear could I shed. Because, you see, I'm suffering from a horrible, incurable disease, and it's called alcoholism. And this disease will rob you of every decent moral respect you've ever had in your life. Shortly thereafter, I abandoned that family in North Carolina, and I don't know any other words to say, my daughter was 20 years old. My youngest daughter was 13 years old, and I just abandoned them. I just walked out one day and left them high and dry. My oldest daughter stood in that living room with tears coming down her eyes, and she said, Dad, for God's sakes, give help. We love you. And I wanted to cry out, Don't you understand? I want to be a dad. I want to be a husband. I want to be a father. Don't you understand? But I couldn't. I could not. I moved down to Greenville, South Carolina, and I knew a new buddy down there that already left his wife. I said, David, do you know somebody here in town that I might date you, Barbara? And they said, oh, yeah. We've got this cute little old gal over here. We think you'll like her. I on Woodbridge Apartments 12, 13 years ago. That door swung open, and there stood the most beautiful thing I'd ever laid my eyes on. <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd already it up a little bit, and you know, and I'd had a credit card, still have a company card, still have a job. She looked at me, and she knew I was rich or thought I was rich. I looked at her, and I knew she was beautiful, and we fell in sick right there. <laughs> we went out that night, and every time, everything she said, I agreed with, everything she said, I agreed with, and it was just a match made in heaven. Every time I took a drink, she took a drink. That woman could drink more beer than anybody I ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> Well, I didn't care. I mean, I'm flopping that box at that, and she'd take that beer, and she had a, she, she was a genius at doing it. She could take a bottle of beer and put it right on the edge of a table, and it would drive me crazy because I knew she would knock them over. I knew she'd knock. I had never seen that woman knock one bottle of beer off the edge of that table in my life. I mean, it was amazing how she could drink. And I said, you know, God found somebody to understand and drink just like me. And I told her shortly after, I said, honey, ain't no sense to me. you living apart. Let's move in together. She said, sounds fine to me. Nothing had ever interfered with my drinking at that time. For when I moved in with Liv, she had a son about a previous marriage, and that little old boy's name's Rob, and he's four years old. Disease of alcoholism. You know, Norman Rockwell's got a picture. he has a fantastic way of painting pictures of the American dream. the nice little house with the kids and the dogs and the hammock and the cars and this. Alcoholics like me got away like becoming a tornado and wrecking those dreams. I have learned that the disease of alcoholism has got certain sights and sounds to it, like furniture breaking, clones ripping, ripped out of the walls, a lot of vulgarity, a little blood, sirens, you know. That little boy might get up in the morning and walk in the living room, and sometimes I'd be passed out, and sometimes I'd be clothed, and sometimes I wouldn't. That little old boy swung his mom's bedroom door open one morning, and he caught her and I in a very compromising position, and you know what I mean. Let me tell you how kids react to the disease of alcoholism. Two o'clock every morning, about two o'clock every morning, I'd come to with, you know, you know how you come to, you know, you gotta have that drink to squelch that screaming madness. I'd lay in that bed for a few minutes and I could hear those blood curling screams coming from that little boy's room. And I'd jump out of that bed and I'd run down and I'd throw that door open and he'd be standing on his bed and he'd take his little fist and he'd be fighting out like he was trying to fight off a devil or an animal and he'd be treating on that wall. And I'd yell at him and scream at him and tell him to shut up. See, that little old boy is suffering from the same disease that I'm suffering from, and it's called untreated alcoholism. And the sad part about that story is is that little boy's four or five years old, and he's never had a drink before in his life. Never had a drink before. You don't have to drink alcohol to suffer from alcoholism. I have found that out. This didn't go on once a week, once a month. This went on day in and day out. Summer of 1983, February of 1983, is Liv sharing her story, I get another DUI. The summer of 1983, we literally just stayed drunk that whole summer. But something's beginning to happen with my drinking. See, I'm around the clock drinking now.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm drinking to survive, see. I'm around the clock drinking. About September, somewhere along there, I'm beginning to notice I can't get there, see. See, the only reason I have a drink, ladies and gentlemen, was to get out of reality, into that first world, and that false world of utopia. Because see, that's when I could plan, and I could scheme, and I could do, and be what I wanted to be. But it ain't working anymore. Okay. September the 12th, 1983, Lib says to me, Rob's 7th birthday, said, I'm taking him over to a skating rink, would you go get a birthday cake for him? Sure, I want you to judge me on my intentions, not my actions, I'll get the cake, no problem. Did my normal thing, drank, got drunk, blacked out, passed out, came to about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. To note on the kitchen counter, to get out of our lives, we no longer want you here. You will not treat me and my son this way anymore. Now, we're not stupid. Alcoholics are not stupid. I knew I had done something, but I didn't know what I had
1: done.
0: <laughs> I knocked down a couple of drinks, and I remember the cake one there, and I knew where she shopped, so I jumped in the car, and I ran down to the grocery store, and there she was with Rob in the grocery store. And we have this gosh awful fight. I'm drunk and I'm screaming and I'm yelling and I'm crazy and she's got drunk and yell. she's yelling and she's screaming and we just like two wild animals in there. We'd, come, we'd become the trash that she talked about the other night. And I don't know what happened after that. I blacked out. But I came to, I came to sometime that night about 8.30 or 9 o'clock and I sat in that room. And I had my moment of clarity. And I don't know how to describe my bottom any better than the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and it says that one day when we make alcohol the king, that one day we will face those hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, and we go no loneliness as few have. I sat in that room that night and I looked around and I was the loneliest human being on the face of this earth and it was like my whole life just played out in front of me all you ever wanted to do was get out of man. All you ever wanted was a decent job and a nice wife and two good kids. All you wanted to have was a little respect. And you had all those things. Now, here you are, you're hopeless and you're helpless. You can't get drunk and you can't get sober. You want to live, yet you want to die. And I sat there that night, and I don't know whether I had a spiritual experience. I don't know whether I surrendered, but I uttered that prayer, I guess, that we've all prayed and I said, God, is there any other way? And Liv came home that night, and I said, if you'll get me somewhere, if you'll get me somewhere, I need help. Mind you, help, not quit drinking. There's a difference. She said, thank God. They had already been talking about me, and we all know who they are. <laughs> she said, I want you to call Lewis, your boss, in the morning. He's willing to help you. Lewis is my boss, my other enabler. Next morning I came to and I said, honey, I said, I don't think it's necessary for me to call Lewis. I said, you know, what seemed to be a good idea the night before was not a good idea the next morning. You've been there. She said, call it me, you out of here. I picked her up the phone and I called old Lewis that morning and because he had been talking to them, let me tell you what Lewis said when I started putting up peripheral BS on him. He said nothing. He let me talk out. See, the problem I've always had, if you didn't talk with me, you could get to me because see if you talk with me I could argue with you Tim said it last night you know we have the greatest ability of talking down to people and I can roll over you if you argue with me but when you go dead solid on me you make me nervous he didn't say anything that morning and finally he said the most important words that have been said to this drunk I understand anybody ever understand you? nobody ever understood me? He said, because I understand you, Bob, I made arrangements to bring you to Atlanta, Georgia, and put you in peaceful Hospital for 28 days. Let me tell you what I heard. 28 days. Four weeks. That's an eternity to an alcoholic who's drinking. I said, Lewis, who's going to run this sales territory up here? He said, Bob, you ain't worked in a year and a half. 28 days ain't going to matter. He says, in fact, the last time you tried to go out of town on a business trip, you almost ran over a guy in Columbia. He picked you up out after you fell out of the car, put you in the car, and drove you to Charleston. He said, Believe me. Three more days later, I guess I had a few more drinking a little more drinking to do, but on three days three days on September the sixteenth, nineteen hundred and eighty three. Lewis my boss and another alcoholic and another drunk. Threw so this drunk in the back seat of the car and drove me to Atlanta, Georgia. First drink I ever had was an old boy named Hal Wright. Last drink I ever had was a lady by the name of Lil. I don't know whether this has got anything to do with anything or not, but you know, both of them are active members of the Progues, I they drove me down to Peachwood and dumped me over here. And I tried to find it this morning because I was thinking, I was telling Christy, I said, I, she said, where you been? I said, looking for Peachford Hospital. I was thinking about checking in, then I wouldn't have to speak this morning, you know. <laughs> Somewhere over here. And I anyway, they dumped me in there and they detoxed me for a week, ten days, and I don't want to get into that. And if you've never had the detox after drinking a half a gallon of vodka on a daily basis for a year, see me after this and I'll tell you how it is. It's hell. I can tell you that. But so we recover real quick, and I went over to the treatment side after about two weeks in there. Old boy up running up to him, and he said, Bob, it's not so bad being an alcoholic. And I said, don't you call me an alcoholic. If you had my problems, you'd drink too. He said, I don't think you've got that many problems, Bob. I just think you've got situations that you created because you're an alcoholic. You know, that's very important for me to remember that every situation i created for 28 years revolved around one thing and one thing only, booze. I could not go anywhere without taking a drink. I would definitely not go anywhere if it was not something there to drink.
1: Fine, thank you. I
0: stayed in that treatment center for about two or three weeks, and finally, old boy, my roommate, he says, we got to go down to room so-and-so, and he says they're going to talk to us about a disease called alcoholism, and I'm almost something smart at it because I was a smart aleck. I got up the next morning and just sort of shuffled on down. Cragging that foot, looking over my shoulder, existing. You know how it is. You know I existed for 44 years of my life. I've lived for the last 11. It's a lot of difference I can tell you. I sat in that room that morning. There's about 75, or 80 patients in there, and I just sort of scrunched up over the wall and put that mask on. That mask of hate, resentment, anger, frustration. The alcoholic mask. Little redheaded doctor come running up the podium, knocked knocked on the podium and he said, My name's Dr. Bill C. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I work in this treatment center, they pay me good money, your money, to come in here and talk to you about alcoholism. If you want to listen, fine, and if you don't, I don't care. And well, when he said that, he looked at me and I looked at him and I knew he was my kind of man, mean and arrogant. <laughs> He passed these questions out. He said, "Ask them true or false. I'm not going to bash you. And you know, it was those 44 stupid questions they'll ask you. And you know, do you drink alone? Do you drink with somebody? Do you feel guilty? I got my over there, and I sort of covered it up. Cause I was smarter than them, and I didn't want them copying my paper. He said, ladies and gentlemen, if you've answered just two of those questions, guess what? You're probably an alcoholic. If you answer just three or more of them, you're definitely an alcoholic. And you're going to die an alcoholic, whether you like it or not. I thought I glanced down there a man, and I took a quick tally, and I'd answer just all but one of them. Come to find out later, I lied about that
1: one. <laughs> I
0: see a lot of he-men sitting in here. How do you answer this stupid question? Has alcohol ever interfered with your sex life?
1: <laughs> you
0: know how we answer that? Absolutely not. Give us a fifth of liquor. we the world's greatest lovers, right? I told Liv how to answer that, and I got out of treatment. She left for about two weeks, and I got a hell of a resentment. The <laughs> doctor stood up there, and he talked about this illness as I suffered from. He said, ladies and gentlemen, he says, you know, you've got certain characteristics and certain personality traits, and he said, you've got a chemical imbalance in your body. He said, but the main problem that you've got if you're an alcoholic, ladies and gentlemen, you operate with something between your ears. If you've got the audacity called a brain. He says, I can tell you what it is. He said, that's a cripple instrument. He said, how many times have you got up and done the same thing over and over and over, expected different results? That man rang my bell when he made a statement. He said, now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're an alcoholic sitting in this room, you need to make a decision before you leave this facility on how you're going to die. Not how you're going to live. How you're going to die. He said, because if you're an alcoholic, he said, you're going to die one of three ways and two of them bad. And that rang my bell for some reason. I didn't want to die drunk. And then he said, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to die sober, he says, I'm going to recommend a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And when he said that, I said, uh-uh. Because I'd been to one of them stupid meetings up in Charlotte, North Carolina, about two or three years before that, and Nancy had the audacity to take me to one of those meetings on Saturday night. On the way over there that night, I said, Nancy, I said, is anybody over there going to recognize Am I going to know anybody over there? And we walked in that meeting, she said, no, big shot, but everybody in that room is going to know you. And I just swelled up and cried. Because <laughs> I'd been a big shot around Charlotte there, and I figured that, you know, I could come over and help them out a little bit. I don't know what your first meeting of our was like, but let me tell you what I thought mine was like. I walked in that room, it's 50, 60 people in there, and it was all of them bunched up over there and they had frowns on their faces. And he kept looking over in the corners, two big old silver pots over there. And he kept looking over there at them, kept looking over at them, and finally those red lights went off, and they went running over there at them. <laughs> and they started pulling that brown stuff in those cups, and they started sloshing it down, and, she, and they started hugging each other, and started laughing. And she said, You want a cup? And I said, You better believe it, because I figured y'all had an answer. <laughs> I mean, the women were hugging the men. The men were hugging the women. They started hugging each other. About that time, a guy come running up over, over to him, and he said, welcome, friend. He said, I love you. And I said, uh-oh.
1: <laughs>
0: she said, shut up. That's just the way we express our feelings. A guy stood up there and told 100 people that night. He was an alcoholic. I like the fellow out of He told Bob story and I laughed at him. They gave out the chips afterwards. And she kept punching me and I said, I ain't getting no chips. They gave out a white chip, a blue chip, a birthday. you are trying to give a fellow a birthday cake and a chip for not taking a drink for a year. And you know what my thoughts were? I don't take a drink of liquor for a year. They're going to give me more than a birthday chip and a cake. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I mean, this is the craziest thing I ever thought of. <laughs> Told me to get the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because it didn't have features of naked women and filthy jokes in it. And that was only the only kind of books I was buying at that time. I'm ashamed to say. Told me to get a sponsor. I said, I don't need no old fool telling me what to do. And the guy said, We don't get old being a fool in the probe of alcoholics not. He said, You need to go to ninety meetings in ninety days. And I said, Why is that? He said, start that hundred and eighty degree turnaround. I said, How long do these meetings last? They said, About two hours. Thirty minutes to get there. that the meeting, thirty minutes to fellowship. All of you sitting in this room for the ones of you, the alcoholic didn't break but two hours a day, remain seated and let the rest of us leave. <laughs> clean this room out in about five minutes. I didn't have time. And I went out there and I got ready for this program. Delta Airlines used to have a slogan, some little gal would answer the phone, you'd call Delph Airlines, and she'd say, This is Airlines, we're ready when you are. This is Alcoholics Anonymous, ladies and gentlemen. We're ready when you are. Yeah. I went to that room that afternoon they had what they called group therapy and I surrendered in front of twenty five strangers sealed the council and Bob B. was in there and said, Bob, would you like to share with us from you at Peachville Hospital? Sat there for a few minutes and started shaking and started crying because I'm a cryer, remember. I said, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Bob. The next 30 minutes they let me shed my heart and my soul to 25 strangers and let me tell you what it was the most wonderful experience I've ever had in my life. Because it was like somebody was standing over my shoulders and they were lifting a thousand pounds off my back. God, the secret's out. I think Claire said it the other night. The secret's out. I don't have to lie anymore. Seal told me, she said, I want you to go down to room so-and-so in the morning. We're going to start killing this spiritual journey. Went down that room that next morning, ten or twelve of us sitting down was an old man and there by the name of Oscar who taught this alcoholic a lot about God. Ask Oscar to pray, and Oscar's an old man and he don't speak the English language very well, but it didn't matter that morning. He said, There God, I want to thank you for letting me wake up with a room I mean, a roof over my head, a bed under my body, and the smell of hot food. I want to thank you for this place that can help me with this thing called alcoholism. I wanna thank you for my wife and my grandkids, my my my, my job. I wanna thank you for this. I wanna thank you for the mountains of the sea. I wanna thank you for the seasons of the year. I want to thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm sitting there thinking, Why are they asking them why asked Oscar thanking him? to ask him to pray. And it was like somebody hit me in the head with a hammer and here you are, big shot, sitting in a treatment center at age 44 simply because you have never been able to appreciate what God's put on this earth free of charge. Mamas, wives, kids, people, places, and things. I never have hugged a man before in my life because remember, I don't have no daddy. I hugged Oscar that morning. I hugged Oscar that morning. I came running Alcoholics Anonymous two weeks later because they told me something in that treatment center and I figured y'all needed some help. What they said, and they didn't say it this way, but see, I'm an alcoholic and I hear what I want to hear, right? They said, we're going to teach you as much in this treatment center in 28 days as they're going to teach you in an Alcoholics Anonymous in one year. But they didn't say that. I don't know. I heard that. So here I come. Come on, honey, we're going to meet and grab Lib by one hand. I bet you we went to 9,000 meetings that first year, and I'm running for rookie of the year, man.
1: <laughs> I
0: tell Lib before we get to the meeting, I say, Honey, you think I ought to talk to him tonight about humility?
1: She, I mean, it's
0: awful. I will to tell him a story after 90 days. Made one year, had one year of sobriety. Got up in front of my home group, just cried and thanked them for helping me grow. If it was a pink cloud floating around in the fall of 1983 until the summer of 1984, September 94, it wasn't down here in Atlanta. It was, I had it. I had it because I rode that pink cloud to death, I got to tell you. About a month after I celebrated, and I celebrated after they gave me Chip, cake. I was sitting outside of a meeting. Oh, aggravating Sterling, that sponsor of mine, gave me a book one time. It's called O'Dap, Our Devilish Alcoholic Personality about the Little Monkey. You know, you take the first word, first letter all those words, and you name the monkey, nickname the monkey O-Dep, monkey ODAP. He'll follow you around, tell you everything you want to hear, nothing you don't want to hear, nothing you need to hear. Like you might not be an alcoholic. You know, you don't need this meeting, Bob, you can have one. Sitting outside of a meeting, thirteen months of sobriety, sitting in the front seat of a car one night. Ego sitting over here, pride's there, and old Dap's running all around between us. <laughs> I'm getting ready to crank that car up because I don't want what you've got, and the reason I don't want what you've got because I ain't got what you've got. Old Jason knocked on the window. He said, "Bob," he said, "You got a minute?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "How are you doing?" Well, you know how we doing right before we getting ready to get drunk? We doing fine, thank you. <laughs> He sat in the front seat of my car and he said, Listen, Bob, he said, I've been watching you since you've been in this program. He said, There's two kind of people that come to the program, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, What is that, Jason? He said, Walkers and talkers. He said, You one fantastic talker, big shot. I said, What do you mean? He said, I'm gonna suggest something to you. He said, I want you to go home tonight. He said, You got a big book? And I said, Yeah, I got a big book He said, Go home, read chapter five in the big book made me mad because see I knew what he was talking about was how it works so that was one of the things I was going to change when I came one of your trusted leaders it
1: takes up too much time it takes up
0: too much time to read how it works see I went home and I found a big book I told Lib I was going to do a little reading and that shocked her I opened it to chapter 5 and let me tell you that first sentence stayed in this alcoholic's mind from that night to this very moment when it says rarely have we seen a person failed who has thoroughly followed our path. The only word that Big Bill, Bill Wilson loved one of the in that book was Rally to Never. I got serious about the probe of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got serious about a sponsor, and I went and got Sterling, and he took me through these steps. He took me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said, Bob, it's so important that you share that. Why is that? He said, because it's a, you have to have another human being on the face of this earth that knows everything about you. And that's true today. My sponsor knows more about me than I know about myself. I had to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had to make those painful amends to a lady who'd given me 20 years in two weeks. It says, will we make that ninth step? We take that ninth step. Nine times out of ten, the unexpected is going to happen. Let me tell you what happened. I made my amends and I tried to explain this illness I had and I tried to explain to her how I was trying to change my life and I said, if you allow me, I'd like to be a father to those kids and I'd like to try to take care of them in the best way possible. If it's any way you can find it in your heart to forgive me for my past, I I really would appreciate it, but if you're not, I've got to clean my side of the street because I've got to, I've got to do what's right. She sat there for a few minutes and the unexpected happened. She said, Bob, I'm going to forgive you. She said, but I need to ask you a question. I said, what's that? She says, why isn't she couldn't have found God the program of Alcoholics Anonymous while we were still together? And I fell to pieces. I can't answer that. Why did you have to become that tornado that you had to become? Why couldn't I get here at age 25, or age 30, or age 35, age 40? I can't answer that. I got here, ladies and gentlemen, because I came to one day and took a drink and it no longer worked. See, the first drink of alcohol I ever took took me out of the world of reality and put me in that false world of utopia. That last drink I ever took took me to the gates of hell and beyond. And that's what I had to do. I had to get to the gates of hell before I could surrender, before I could get here. And that's hard to explain. I carried that guilt around me for a couple, of three years and finally in Johnson City, Tennessee one night and I said, God, if you don't take this guilt away from me, I'm going to drink. And I sat down that night and I wrote that lady about a 14-page letter and I described in detail every horrible thing that I had ever done to she and those children. And I put it in an envelope and I put it on a desk and I got on my knees and said, God, give me directions. I got up the next morning, I did my morning meditation and I walked out of that door and before I walked out of that door, I looked over there had that letter, and I just walked over, and it was like a magnet, and I just picked it up, and I tore it in half, and I threw it in the trash can, and I have not looked back since, and that's what it took for me, and I'm okay today
1: with that. I
0: had another biggie to make, and you know who that was to. That was to my mom. I drove up on that graveyard one Sunday, one, one, one spring morning, and And in South Carolina, out there where she's buried, and I walked up there with God by my side, and I stood in front of that graveyard, in front of her grave, and I told my mom exactly what I had been like, what had happened to me, and what I was like now. And I made those amends to her. That's the easiest amends I've ever had to make, and I'm going to tell you why. Because in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says deep down in every man, woman, and child, the fundamental idea of God, exists, And it seems to me that when I am childlike, I am close to my God. And that morning I was so childlike and I knew that I was close to my God. And if I was childlike that morning, I know without a shadow of a doubt, mama's forgive, little boys. I go by that grave two or three times a year and I put flowers on it. And I talk to my mom. And sometimes we laugh. And sometimes we cry. And that's part of my healing process. And I know that my mom knows right now that her son's sober and everything's okay. What's my life like today? Oh, Don C. says it better than anybody I've ever heard back home. He said, my life's fantastic. Nothing great ever happens.
1: (laughs) Makes a lot of sense to me.
0: You know, today, I, when I got here, I was so paranoid, I couldn't even answer a telephone. we got seven telephones in our house. I couldn't even go to the mailbox. God got to run to the mailbox now. You know, I used to pass out, come to. You know, I used to pass out, come to, get, use the bathroom, then get out of bed. Today, I go to sleep. I, I wake up, I get out of bed, and then go to the bathroom. <laughs>
1: That's about it.
0: I think, you know, you know, I, I I got a great job, I got a great family, I got yeah, you know, everything's just fantastic in my life, but let me tell you. I don't appreciate this thing at times. See, I get too much into me. A couple three years ago my furnace went out about a couple of weeks before Christmas and I got an old boy in the program named Larry. he's the one I do. And Larry's always one you can whine to and he's got to help you. I called old Larry that morning. I said, Larry, you ain't gonna believe what happened to me. Living's not doing right. The kids not doing right. My furnace is out. I'm broke. Blah 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 blah. He said, Shut up. He said, I'm tired of this new wine. I said, What are you talking about, Larry? This is Bob. He said, I know who it is. He said, You know why you need a furnace? I said, Why? He said, Because you own a home. He said, You know why you own a home? I said, Why? He said, Because you got a job. He said, You know why you got a job, Bob? I said, Why? He said, Because you got a family that loves you. He said, "You know why you got a family that loves you, body? And I said, "Why?" He said, "Because you got God and Alcoholics Thomas in your life." He said, "What the hell's your problem now?" I thought for a few minutes and I said, "Lad, I believe I'll go buy two furnaces." <laughs> I do have two families today. And the reason I have two families today is because I have the big family. I have with Alcoholics Anonymous and, and my other family. And I'm going to talk to you briefly about my other family. I'm going to get off here because I know everybody wants to go home. You know, it's just part of me that I always wanted to be like them. You know, I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a good husband. I wanted to be a member of society, but I never could. And this program's given me all that. It's given me the opportunity to go back to a 32-year-old daughter that I abandoned when she was 20 years old. I made my amends to that daughter, and she said, Okay, Dad, it's okay. No problem. I forgive you. But I knew. That wall was still there. Every time we got together, which was rarely, it was superficial conversation. April a year ago, I got a letter from that daughter. The only letter I've ever gotten from her. Her Susan. She said, Dad, she says, I know that you're going to be surprised to get a letter from me. She said, But I felt compelled to write you. She said, Andy and I started going to this church up in Fuquay, Verena, where we lived. And she says, we had to go on a church retreat this weekend. We had to do certain exercises. And she said, one of the exercises we had to do, Dad, we had to talk about all the pain that we'd suffered in our life. And she said, I had to share that pain with another human being and God. Does that sound familiar? And she said, Dad, she said, I talked about you and about all the pain that you had caused me and Mom and Kelly in our lives. And she said, Dad, the more I talked, the more I hated you. She said, the next day we had another session and we had to go and we had to talk about the heroes of our life and I didn't want to go. She said, but somehow there when it came my turn, all of a sudden I began to understand because I had shared the pain of my life with a God and another human being. I began to understand for somehow the pain in your life as a suffering alcoholic and how you had tried to overcome your illness and how you had done the best you could to recover from a hopeless state of mind and body. And she said, all of a sudden, Dad, it just dawned on me that you were a hero in my life. And I want you to know that I forgive you and I love you. Now, I have a way to believe. I have a reason to believe that, see, I always wanted to paint pictures in my life. But, see, I don't need to paint those pictures. God paints those pictures. And in those pictures, see, there are certain miracles and there's certain beauty. And if I become spiritually fit, I can see all that today. She called me Thanksgiving a year ago and she said, Dad, you gotta be the first adult besides me if you're gonna be a granddad. July the 31st at 8.55 this past year, at 8.55 a.m., she gave me a gift. That gift is seven pounds, six ounces, and her name is Adelaide and she's the prettiest baby God ever made. Guess <laughs> where her granddad was at 8.55 that Sunday morning, in a meeting of Alcoholics Moms. I flew up to Raleigh, North Carolina that night and guess who picked me up at the airport to see my first grandchild? Hal Ray. Man I took my first drink with. He's an active member of the program of Alcoholics and We was riding over there that morning, that night and I said, Harold, I don't know how to feel. Tell me how to feel. And I said, you've got grandchildren, how do you feel? He said, Bob, don't worry about your feelings. He said, God's gonna take care of that. He said, you know what's important? I said, what's that? He said, that grandchild never has to see you take a drink as long as she lives. That's Alcoholics Anonymous, ladies and gentlemen. God painted that picture I didn't yeah. My daughter's 25 years old today. My youngest daughter, her name's Kelly. Liz and I, about five years ago, had to take an inventory, and I guess it was okay. She'd been drunk down soon the University of South Carolina for about a month, and she'd wrecked the cars. And I said, hey, time to do something? I went down there and I said, honey, I said, listen, I think you're a lot like your dad. And I said, because you're a lot like your dad, I said, I'm going to take you home with us. And I said, I'm going to introduce you to some of my friends and you're going to see those friends for one year and then you're young, young. And I brought my daughter to you. And part of me says, hey, take her, make her well, make her spiritual, make her, get her sober. But just remember, handle with, please handle, handle her with kid gloves because she's Bob's daughter. So I wanted to be a father. I wanted to be a sponsor. I wanted to be a guru. I wanted to be her, everything. After about five or six months in this program, she got this big mouth sponsor, and she called me one night, and she said, hey, hot I don't ask you something. <laughs> she said, was the program Alcoholics and was good enough for you when you got there? I said, yes. She said, it's good enough for your daughter. Get off her case. And she was right.
1: <laughs>
0: My daughter had an interruption after one year and a half, and she came by the house, and she said, Dad, I know you're going to hate me, but I got drunk. Let me tell you how dad grew and grown. She said, but I want you to know that I'm going to go to my home group tonight and pick up a white chip because I need to. And I just looked at her and I said, sweetheart, let me tell you something. I'm your dad. I'm going to love you whether you're drunk or you're sober, but there's one thing you need to understand. Don't go pick up a white chip because you need to. You go pick up a white chip because you want to. This is not a program for people who need it. This is a program for people who want it. And she went and picked up that ship, and she's been doing fine ever since. God, she graduated from college. She got some kind of job, and, you know, it's just wonderful. She, let me tell you the miracle. She called me the other day, and let me tell you one of God's gifts that I can recognize today. She called me on the phone the other day. She said, Dad, she said, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing okay. She said, I ain't seen you in a couple of weeks. She said, can I come over? She just wanted to come over. See, that's God's grace. Just wanted to come over and see Dad. Also wanted a few dollars, too, but that's okay. (laughs) I got to get another sponsor because you know what he tells me? It ain't your money. Bob Scott's money. He said, you suppose you should. (laughs) I walked into a young man's life when he was four years old. And I became that tornado in his life, and i got to tell you, that man today is 18 years old, and he's a movie star, and he's my son, not my stepson. He's my son. Let me tell you a miracle in his life. The nightmares ago. He tells me at least, at least twice a day, Bob, I love you. I love you, Bob. Yeah. He plays golf with me and my sponsor, means people I sponsor. He's grown up in AA. Stood in front of 65, 75 people about two weeks ago. He looked at Sterling and he said, Sterling, he says, I want to thank you for being Bob's sponsor. He said, because he's turned out to be the greatest dad I could have ever wanted. And he gave me my leadership. Cliff shared it the other night. He's found his God in the Law Baptist Church, and I finally support him from the back row.
1: (laughs) Liv and I are sort
0: of like Buzzard Baptists. The only time we want to go is when they're going to feed us or somebody's dead, you know. (laughs) We were sitting in the back row of church one day, and Rob happened to be sitting back there with us, and we prayed together the Lord's Prayer, and he looked up at me and and he said, You keep coming back. It works if you work it. And I said, Not me. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my beautiful wife, Liv. I used to be a mall drinker and, you know, I used to go in these, but I could afford to go in these fancy bars and these malls. And I'd sit in these malls and I'd, I'd, I'd look out and I'd look at the people walking around and I always wanted to be like them. And I'd see a man and his wife, a man and his wife walking around with kids and how wonderful it was. And I said, God, why can't I be like that? Liv and I went over to per- Perimeter Mall yesterday afternoon. And, I was sitting out there in the middle and she was in there trying on clothes or whatever. And I just watched the people walk around. A few minutes later, Liv came out and we started walking down the mall there and she took her arm, she stuck it through mine. You know, I was just like them. I was just like them. She and I connected in so many, so many ways. You know, I, I guess I need to say this because, see, I'm married to another Bob McKinney because he's an alcoholic, you see. And, 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 and see, the way I'm doing is the way she's doing. In other words, if I'm full of fear, you know, I'm going to take it out on her. If I'm resentful, I'm going to take it out on her. You know, because I live with a clone like me. And I say this in all sincerity. Living with another alcoholic will do one of two things for you. It will get you into the steps or will get you into the streets. And I mean that.
1: <laughs> there is two steps
0: in the Fellowship of the pro Alcoholics Anonymous in this big book that we put in our lives every day as a must for us. That's three and ten. Because we have to put God in our life, and I have to recognize on a continuing basis, Honey, I'm sorry it's not you, it's me. Because, see, I live with another Bob. Not only is she my best friend, she's my wife, she's my lover. I pay her the highest compliment that I can pay any woman alcoholic. She is an active member of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that phone rings from 6.30 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. Most of the time it's for her. She works with a lot of women, and I love her dearly. I love her dearly. As God as I understand him, I had a problem with that when I got here until about three years ago when I made a financial amendment to a man down in Manning, South Carolina that I'd conned out of money over 30 years, and I always like to close with this. I said, Sterling, owe this man some money, and I said, he, I said, he probably won't remember it. He said, he'll remember it. Go pay him. <laughs>
1: That's why
0: i got to get another sponsor. <laughs> I called old Carl up, and I said, Carl, I'm going to be through town in a couple of days. I'd like to see you. And he said, well, I'll work out on this farm. He said, I'll be out there. That tells you he doesn't have a lot of money. drove up that morning, went out on that farm. He said, the front seat of the car, and I sat there for a few minutes. He started talking, and I said, Carl, I got this money from you over 30 years ago to buy a car. And I said, I never paid you back. And I said, I want to make it right. And he said, yeah, I remember. <laughs> remember the amount. I took the money out, and I paid him. Sat there for a few minutes, and one thing led to another, and we started sharing. He said, Bob, he said, God, you paid me at the right time. I said, what are you talking about, Carl? He said, well, you know a little restaurant in town? I said, yeah. He said, well, I was sitting in there the other day, and he said, this old bum and drunk came through and asked me for a job, and I didn't have anything for him to do out here. He said, "It's Christmas time, I just felt sorry for him. He just went out and sat on the sidewalk, didn't bother anybody. Finally got up and conscience was bothering me a little bit and I walked out there and I said, come on. I said, I'm going to help you out. He said, you got know a little motel in the edge of town? I said, yeah. He said, I took him out there and said, I know the manager out there, he got this little restaurant, this little motel. A little cheap place, not, nothing in fancy. He said, I want you to put him up. He said, I want you to give him two meals a day. He said, I'm going to stand good for the bill and come by and I'll pay you. He said, I trust you, Carl. He said, you know, today i got to go by and pay that bill. And last night I said, God, where am I going to get that money from? And I looked at him and he looked at me and we both just grinned. That's God as I understand it. See, God's got the job to do. I'm just one of the workers, that's all. I'm just one of the workers. See, God's got the plan, not God. I rode through Manning that morning. I stopped over on the side of the street where my mom's house was and I looked over there and it was falling apart. I looked over at it and I just saw the smile because I wasn't ashamed of it anymore. I looked at that street. I had to walk up and down so many times and I knew that I never had to feel like I was a second class citizen the rest of my life. I drove out of town. The old liquor store was closed down. I didn't need it anyway because you see, I've been given a gift. Greatest gift in our probably never get, and that's right And I was happy and I was joyous and I was free. And there's a prayer that I learned early on in this beautiful fellowship that says it all for me. And it's called the faith prayer when it says where there's faith, there's peace. And where there's peace, there's love. And where there's love, there's God. And where there's God, there is no need. I don't need a thing, ladies and gentlemen. I've got it all right here. God bless you, and I love you. Thank you.
1: (laughs)